And we're going to try to move through this as best we can, but glad that y'all are here. It's good to see you even, Evelyn. Hey, good to have y'all back with us. And Carol's back. Got Carol back. Um, but we're starting in Isaiah in our book. It's the first session. And we're talking about, um, well, repentance. And basically, Isaiah, and, and we're going to talk, I'm going to give you a little bit of background, not too much. I'm going to give you a little bit of background so that we can understand what's going on. So Isaiah lived in the days after, well, he, he was there when Uzziah was king. But Uzziah died, and then he had Jotham, and then Ahaz and Hezekiah. So he went through four different kings. And during Isaiah's ministry, Israel was going through really bad stuff. And let me uh, see if I can find that um, about how things were going because it um, really resonates to the, with us today. All right, so this is what... Uh, the study guide tells us what was happening in Israel at that time. These were tumultuous years of social upheaval, uncertain leadership, international threats, and spiritual decay for God's people. Does that sound familiar? This is pretty much what we're living through right now. So Isaiah's ministry was at a time when Israel was on the downslope. You know, they had their upslope where they got all right with God and everything was good and then they sin again and they'd be on the downslope and they'd get punished. So right now they're on the downslope and they're not quite at the bottom, but they're getting there. And Isaiah's ministry, his his book, begins in, in a different way than all the other prophets. Because at the very beginning, instead of stating his credentials and stating where he came from and all this stuff... He immediately launches into a condemnation of Israel. From the very beginning, he launches into a condemnation of Israel for their sinfulness, for their disobedience. And the first thing he says, if you read the beginning of Isaiah, this is what he says in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So from the very beginning, the first thing Isaiah says is, you'd better listen to what I'm saying, because I'm telling you what God told me. He's not going, this is my opinion. This is what I think. This is my thoughts. He said, listen to me, Israel, because I'm speaking God's words. And if you disagree with me, then you're disagreeing with God. If you disobey me, you're disobeying God. And so Isaiah, from the very beginning, first thing he does is he lays out, this is from God. You'd better listen, Israel. And the same word that is used here for hear, O Israel, is the same word used in Deuteronomy where he says, listen, Israel, God is the only God. There is only one God. And so this is a statement of emphasis. This is important. This is like putting a big old bookmark right here saying, you'd better note this. You better pay attention to this and remember this. And so this is what he begins. And he also goes on to say, you guys think that you're God's people. You think that you know God, but the animals know God better than you do. So immediately he slaps them down. It's like, boom, 
you know, it's a drop the mic moment if you, if you know that statement. But he says, even the animals know God better than you. So you think you're doing God's will. You think you're okay with God. Well, I got news for you. You're not. Even the animals are in better shape with God than you. And so he goes on to lay out uh, the things that Israel has done uh, in verses 1 through 9. And then he says this, and this is interesting. In verse 9 he says this, Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. So this is Isaiah's uh, emphasis. He says, you know what? If God hadn't been merciful to Israel, we'd already be wiped off the face of the map. We'd already been set on fire. He would have dropped a rock on us. We'd be done. So not only are you disobedient, but the only reason you still live is because God is merciful. So this book begins right out of the gate with, you're in trouble. You got problems. And you'd better correct these problems or bad things are going to happen. So this is not uh, a book of rejoicing. This is not a book of happy feel good. This is a book of get yourself right with God. Get on the right side of God or bad things are going to happen. So that's where we are. So that's our little background. And we start in verse 10. And this is what he says. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me, asks the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. So in verse 10, Isaiah, and again, this is God speaking. In verse 10, he compares Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Israel, because they had all these rituals, and because they had all these sacrifices, they thought they were the favored. They thought they were in good shape. But then God compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah, the most evil cities that ever lived. So evil that God wiped them off the map. So this is God not playing around. This is God being very explicit, saying, you guys have messed up so bad, you are like the worst cities that have ever existed. And so, this is very shocking to the people of Israel. They say, we thought we were doing good. We thought we, we, go, to our, we go to the temple, we make our sacrifices, we go to all the festivals. We thought we were in good shape. How come you're being so mean to us now? Yes, Joy. That's because the Father didn't have their hearts in it. They spoke with their mouths, but they didn't have their heart really toward God. See, and that's, you're right, and that's what we're going to get to later on. So, exactly, they were not uh, doing it right. But anyway, they go on to think, well, God goes on rather to say, What are all your sacrifices to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings. Now, if you look in Leviticus, the burnt offerings to which he refers were voluntary. They were not required. So Israel was going out of their way to do extra. They were going out of their way to do more than was required. And then it says, the fat of well-fed cattle. So they were trying to put on a good show for God. They, hey, this is my best cattle. I've been fattening, this cow, fattening up this cow for months and I'm giving it to God. Everybody look at how wonderful I am. 
Everybody look at how faithful I am. God was telling them, you're doing all this voluntarily, but it doesn't mean anything to me. And he's going to tell them why in just a little bit. But this is to get their attention. This is to get Israel's attention. Because he wants them to understand he's not happy. They thought God was happy with them. They thought they were okay. And God's saying, guess what? You're not. You are so not happy. You are so not on my good side. And so we're going to find out just why. But this is a very shocking opening to this book. In verses 12 through 14, he continues, When you come before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. It's kind of like what you used to say to your kids, right? I've had it up to here with you. I'm tired. I'm fed up. You just, just get out of my sight for a little bit so I can calm down. Because if you stay in my sight much longer, you're going to get in worse trouble than you already are. So sometimes you just have to say, I'm fed up with it. And that's what God's saying. He says, I'm fed up with this. He calls it in verse 12, he says, the trampling of my courts. He said, not only are you doing all this wrong, but you are absolutely trashing my, my uh, temple. You're trashing everything that I hold to be holy. And so he is doing this in extremely, uh, ex- extremely explicit terms, saying, I am unhappy. And then in verse 15, he says, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So even if you say, oh God, how wonderful are you? Please hear my prayer. I'm not going to hear you. Because your hands are covered with blood. That was a reference to Israel doing all these things wrong. All the sins that Israel had committed had covered their hands with blood. And yet, they, they thought that just by doing these rituals, they thought that by doing these sacrifices, that could excuse their sin and their disobedience. And so God, from the very beginning, in verse 1-15, through 15, and again, Isaiah is speaking with the voice of God. God is laying out for the Israelites... I am unhappy with you. You have sinned against me. And you are not doing things the right way. It doesn't matter if you're coming to church. It doesn't matter if you're singing the hymns. It doesn't matter if you're tithing. You have done it wrong because you have sinned against me and been disobedient. Now what does this mean for us today? How does this speak to us today? We've talked a little bit about it, but how does this speak to us today? In that God does not want us to come uh, gather together uh, as a ritual or as a uh, habit. He wants us to come with our hearts uh, bent towards Him and to lift Him up and worship Him and glorify Him. That's what we should be gathering for. But 
we can all be, be guilty of coming just because it's Sunday. Yeah, this is true. Not only that, wants us to live uh, Monday through Saturday like we do Sunday. Amen. Yeah. You know the term country club church? <laughs> yeah. Heard that before? Yeah. Some folks think that a church is a country club. And it has been used. Some people use church, especially in bigger cities. Some people use church for business contacts. Yeah. And especially if there's a politician running for something. Politician. Yeah. People often do the first church or the big yep. church. You know? Politicians will use the church to get those votes. And business people will use the church to get that business. It is a country club mentality. And they are there for the wrong reasons. We have often said that America was a Christian nation. And perhaps it was at one time. But what I think about now, and I was thinking about this as I studied and and trying to figure out what God is really saying and how it applies to us. America is not the people of God. Israel was the people of God because they had a covenant relationship. America does not have a covenant relationship with God. The Christians who live in America have a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So when he says the people of God, he refers to Israel in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it refers to Christians. He's not talking to those who don't believe in Christ. He's not talking to the United States of America. He's not talking to the Christian nation, whoever it might be. He's talking to those people who call themselves Christians. And that's something that I think that we have gotten confused about here in this country. Because America never had a covenant relationship with God. America was never God's people. Now there were Christians that founded it. Yes, and they tried to found it on biblical principles. But America as a nation was not a covenant relationship with God. God's covenant now is only through Jesus Christ, and that is for anyone who believes. It doesn't matter what nation you are. So what I'm saying here is that we think we're talking about America, or, or we can apply this to how it applies to America. But we need to be careful because we're not talking about America. God's not talking about the United States of America. He's talking about His people, the Christians, those who follow Christ, those who believe in Him. And so we need to be careful about that. And that's something I've been guilty of in the past too. Because I want America to be a Christian nation. But I have to remember that America is not God's people. There are plenty of people in this country who don't believe in God. They are still Americans, but they are not God's people. And so when he talks about the people of God, that applies to you and me. And that's to us. And for Christians, we have to be careful, like y'all said, we have to be careful not to be participating in empty rituals. And it's especially difficult for those of us that grew up in church, that have always been to church, because we've never known any other way. And so it's easy for us to get caught in a rut and to not think about it. This is... This is why I try when I sing, and being a musician is a little bit different for me, but when I sing songs, I try to think about the words. 
It's not just, Amazing Grace is a beautiful hymn, but everybody rolls their eyes when you sing it. Oh, we're bringing out Amazing Grace again. We're singing that again. Oh, we've only sung that a hundred million times. But it's still a great song. And if we think about the words, then it has great meaning. But if we just sing it because it's Amazing Grace, then it doesn't have meaning. It's the same thing as what the Israelites were doing. They were doing the things they'd always done. Because that's how they were supposed to do. But they didn't think about what they were doing. Those festivals that they attended were designed to show their obedience and devotion to God. They were not just an excuse to get together and see people you hadn't seen in a dozen years. Those sacrifices and burnt offerings were designed to show their repentance of their sin before God. They were not meant to curry God's favor. See, this is the thing that we don't always understand is that Israel was in the midst of pagan nations. And all these pagan nations around them had their own gods. And whenever they went to their God, they would offer a sacrifice to get their God's attention. The better the sacrifice, the more likely your God was, it was going to be pleased with you. And so it, was a, it didn't mean that you were devoted to your God. It meant you wanted something from your God. And that's what Israel was doing. They were taking these meaningful devotions and sacrifices and making them meaningless by being just like the pagan nations around them. Saying, well, if I give my best cow that I've been fattening up for months... God is certainly going to hear my prayer. If I come and do these extra burnt offerings that aren't required, and I do it in front of everybody for them to see, God will definitely hear my prayer. And so they were becoming just like the pagan nations. And God was saying, enough. That's it. You claim to be devoted to me, but yet you still disobey me. You still sin against me. And so he was saying, that's enough. And that's where Israel was, and it applies to us today. Again, not to the United States of America, but to those of us who call ourselves Christians. Those of us who follow Christ. It applies to us too. And so in verse 16 and 17, God has done all the um, condemnation. Now He's going to tell them how to get right with Him. And this is what He says in verse 16 and 17. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So he has condemned Israel and told them he's unhappy and that you've been disobedient, Israel. And now he's giving them the blueprint for how to get in, how to repent, how to get on his good side, how to be right with God. And he says, wash, cleanse, remove, and stop. Those are cleansing rituals. And just like the priests would have to cleanse themselves, would have to wash themselves ritually to uh, be able to enter the temple, to enter God's presence, so Israel, or Isaiah rather, was telling Israel, this is how you repent. First thing is you got to get yourself clean. And it's not just the... Notice he starts with the wash and the cleanse. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves. So he starts with the physical. Wash yourself, cleanse yourself. That's the outside. 
But then what's the next thing he says? Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. That's the insight. So Isaiah says, look, if you want to be right with God, you've got to clean the outside, but then you've got to clean the inside too. You've got to stop doing evil. Stop. Get those evil deeds out of my sight. Get those evil deeds out of your sight. Stop. That's it. Very simple. Clean the outside. Clean the inside. And that's what he tells them. And then he gives them a blueprint for how to uh, interact with the others around them. Do good. Correct the you know uh, uh, correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Pursue justice. Plead the widow's cause. And treat people well. Be kind to others. Show them the love that I have shown to you. So it starts with cleaning the outside. Then you cleanse the inside. And then you interact with others the way God would have you do so. To treat them the way God would treat them. With kindness, mercy, and compassion. And... So this is the blueprint that he gives to the people of Israel. So how do we do this in our life? How, how does this apply to ours? Yes, Joy. Change our hearts. Change our hearts. What else? I think we have to be aware. We have to be aware of what's around us. Because in this world, we are surrounded by evil. And it's so accessible today. And we have to teach this to our children too. It is so accessible today. We are surrounded by the opportunity to do bad. And so we have to be aware of our surroundings. If you go through the military, and you train to be a, a fighter, if you train to fight, one of the things they tell you is you have to be aware of your surroundings. There, if you're in a fight, there's a thing called tunnel vision, where when you're in a fight and your adrenaline is flowing, you only see what's directly in front of you. And you can fight that person, but guess what? There might be two or three guys on either side of you who are coming to attack you. And if you don't have what they call situational awareness, then you're a dead man. And so not only do you not have tunnel vision, you have to have situational awareness. And the same thing is true in our lives. We have to have situational awareness of the situations that we're in. When you get in a bad situation, be aware, ooh, this is bad. I shouldn't be here. It's like when you tell your teenagers, when you tell your children, well, I just want to go to the party. I'm going to have fun. There might be drinking there, but I'm not going to do it. Well, then you shouldn't go. You shouldn't put yourself in that situation. Well, my buddies after work are going to go to the bar and have a good time. I won't drink, but I'm just going to go with them and have a good time. Well, you shouldn't be in that situation to begin with. You have to have situational awareness. Well... Uh, there's this pretty young lady at work, but I'm, I'm a happily married man, and so she wants to go for drinks afterwards, and I'm just going to go to be nice. I'll be her friend, and nothing will happen. Don't put yourself in that situation. 
situational awareness. Stop doing what is evil. Get those evil deeds out. And that's why it's so easy for us to fall into temptation because it's everywhere. And it's so easy to get caught in those things and think, well, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did I get in this situation? You went for drinks. You went to her apartment when you shouldn't have. You went to his apartment when you shouldn't have. You, you went to the place you shouldn't be. Situational awareness. That's how we apply it to our lives today. 18 through 19. Uh, Come let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. So here again, God says, I am unhappy with you. Because you have been disobedient. And you've been doing all these empty rituals that are detestable to me. But guess what? If you repent, I will take you back. I will cover your sins. And you know what's interesting about this verse is, I don't know if this is the first time we see this in the Old Testament, but this looks like what Jesus said, isn't it? Though your sins are as scarlet, you can be white as snow. Who is it that takes our sins and makes them white as snow? Jesus. Jesus. This was the forerunner. This was the beginning of Jesus. This is where Jesus is first kind of referenced Because Jesus would be the ultimate one who would take away our sins. He would be the ultimate one who would wash wash us white as snow. And so it's very interesting. I like the way this is written. Because in the Old Testament, we already see a picture of Jesus. And so it's very interesting to see this here. And it also shows that Israel can still recover. Israel can still repent. Remember when um, Joshua went to the Ninevites and he preached their doom and then they all repented and he got mad because he said, y'all were supposed to get wiped out. Now I look silly. And uh, it was the same thing for Isaiah. He's preaching to them saying, you can repent. But Isaiah is not going to get mad when they repent because he's not going to pout like Joshua did. So you can repent and turn back to God. And your sins, and that's the great thing about God's mercy, that's the great thing about Jesus Christ, is your sins, which are as blood, as red as blood. Remember he told the Israelites, your hands are covered with blood. Your sins can be made white like snow. My brother and I and his family, we went to dinner in downtown Prattville Thursday night got pizza and then afterwards we went walking around downtown Prattville there's a furniture store downtown and I looked in the window and there was all this white furniture I thought who in the world is dumb enough to get white furniture I mean that's just crazy you have to be really brave to have white furniture you have to be really careful too to have white furniture I would never have white furniture because I would immediately get something on it So I want you to think about somebody that has this nice white sofa, just pure linen white. And uh, they get a glass of wine, and they go sit down on their white sofa, and they spill that wine, and there's a big old spot right there. That sofa's done. You might be able to get some of it out, but that white sofa's always going to be stained with that stain. 
the sister-in-law, the one that's sick, that has the COPD now, they've always had black furniture in their formal living room, but nobody's ever been in the cell. That's right. Don't you go in that room. But uh, that's the thing. You got this white sofa and you got this big old wine stain right on it. You can rub and rub and rub, but it's not coming out. But I want you to use that picture to think about how Jesus cleans us. He takes that stain and he wipes it out so that it is completely new. It looks just like it did before. You've got a white sofa again. Jesus can do what shout out can't. So, uh, he can make that stain white as snow. And that's the beauty of God's mercy. So, verse 20, he tells us this. So, God has laid out his case. He said, you've done wrong. Your sacrifices are detestable to me. Your rituals are meaningless. And they make me sick. But if you repent, I will make your sins as white as snow. I will take you back. I will have mercy on you. But then he says this in verse 20. He said, but if you refuse and you rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So once again, Isaiah reminds him, this is not me talking. I'm telling you what God said. And he said, if you refuse this uh, condemnation, if you refuse this offer, then you will be devoured by the sword. And we know from history that God was not playing around. That Israel did continue to rebel. And what happened to them? The Babylonians wiped out the temple. Took them all into captivity. And then later on the Romans wiped out the temple. And they occupied their land. And the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel ceased to exist. As in they were wiped out. Israel's gone. No more Israel. Wiped out. So God was not playing around. He said, if you refuse to obey me, if you refuse to repent, I will wipe you out by the sword. And we know from history that God did exactly that. And it wasn't until 1958? 48, thank you. 1948 that the nation of Israel came back into existence. And if you read throughout history, as the Jews were scattered throughout Europe and Asia and Africa, they were heavily persecuted. They were almost wiped out. Well, yeah. Even before World War II, now that was an example, but even before World War II, they had crusades against the Jews. European nations crusaded against the Jews to wipe them out. So they were punished for their iniquity. If they had stayed with God, the nation of Israel would never have fallen and it would have remained a strong nation. And we wouldn't be reading about that history of the wiping out of Jewish leaders and and the Nazis wiping out the Jewish people in Germany. We wouldn't be reading about that. But because they rebelled, because they refused to listen to God's word, they were wiped out by the sword. So God was very serious when he said, you will be wiped out. And he was not playing around. He did what he said he would do. Because they refused to obey. And what does that mean for us? Again, 
It's not talking about the United States of America. Yes, the United States of America can fall. It's just like any other empire in history. United States of America can fall. But he's not talking about the United States of America. He's talking about Christians. If we refuse to obey, if we refuse to hear God's word and repent, we will be devoured by the sword. And it's happening in places around the world where Christians are being persecuted for their faith. It can happen here in America, too. Well, just like they say, that just can suffer for the unjust. Exactly. And I'm sure back in those days in Israel, there were some that were still following God, but because most of the nation turned away from Him, they were mm-hmm. persecuted, too. So I worry about that with America. You know, even though there's some of us still trying to follow, but we're, we're going to be, you know, we might be persecuted along with God's wrath mm-hmm. America. Yeah, I was talking about that with my brother. That's a very good point. Is that there were good Jews, faithful Jews, when Babylon came. Yeah, because Daniel, he was one of them. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, all those. There were good Jews, faithful Jews, but they suffered that exile just like all the other Jews did. And the same thing can happen to Christianity. Imagine a United States of America where Christianity is outlawed. Where we have to go underground where we have to preach in secret, where we have to sing our songs quietly, in secret. Imagine a world like that. It can happen. And it might happen. And, and as a country, I mean, we already have laws that are contrary to, to God's Word. Exactly. I mean, in, you know, abortion is legal. You know, it's legal for a man and a man to get married. Yeah. I mean... That's a, totally against what, what God tells us. So we're already going that path. We are. And I believe that is a symptom exactly what Israel was doing. Because there are so many that call themselves Christian that allow these things to go on that do not stand against it and say, no, abortion is wrong. No, homosexuality is wrong. No, living in sin is wrong. There are so many who call themselves Christians here in America, who do not fight against sin, who do not stand against sin. And that is our call today. We have to be true to God's Word. Now, we do it with compassion. We do it with mercy. But when someone comes to you and says, you can't say that homosexuality is a sin because that's oppressive. That's politically incorrect. You say, I don't care what you say. Homosexuality is a sin. Someone comes to you and says abortion is a choice to protect the life of the woman. You can't stand against it. It's wrong. No, you're wrong. I will stand against abortion always and forever in every situation because it is murder. And so you, as a, we as Christians have to be willing to stand up for God's work and quit going along with the world. Well, we can't do things like that because the world will turn our message off. Well, that's their problem. God didn't say, water down my message so people will come. God didn't say, make your message amenable to everybody so they won't be offended. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is a black and white matter. There is no gray. You're either with God or you're against God. 
If you don't like God's Word, if you don't like His message, then you have rejected Him. And that's on you. But if I tell you something that's not true and say it's God's Word, that's on me. So we have to be willing to stand up for the truth. And the truth is in short supply these days. That's one of the biggest problems in our world is the truth is in short supply. People don't stand for the truth. They're afraid to stand for the truth. And so we as Christians have to be willing to stand up for the truth. And we have to encourage other Christians to do the same. The when we see problem is so many Christians go along with the world view. I mean, yep. Is, Unfortunately. I hear, I hear Christians and I'm going, how can you read God's Word and then stand up there and say what you're saying? I, I don't know. Understand. Again, they're calling themselves a Christian. Well, that's true. And again, that's between them and God. I can't, I can't say that they're Christians or not. That's between them and God. But by their fruit you shall know them. And if they reject God's word, that's not a good fruit. Um, and you also find people become Christian politicians when they're running for office. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they call themselves a Christian. But I look at everything they have ever done, and there's not one Christian act in anything Mm-mm. they've ever done. Nope. So, like you said, you tell about what people do. Yeah. But again, as Christians, and again, this is not for the United States of America. The United States of America is not God's people. They do not have a covenant relationship with God. We're not the chosen. We, yeah, America is not the chosen. Christians are the chosen. But we think we are. We think we are. <laughs> and we, we want to be. We want to be God's people. We want America to be God's nation. And as long as we do what he says, because it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Yes. And so as long as we follow that, but so many times it's just, he blesses us, but we're not his chosen. Right. Right. The United States of America is not his covenant relationship. So again, we as Christians have to do what we can to stand up for the truth. And we have to encourage others to do so, and we teach our children to do so. And our grandchildren to do so. When you're, and this is so sad, and I'm trying not to go too long, but it's hard not to. When our children are taken to sensitivity training and taught that transgender kids can be whatever they want, that gender is a choice, you have to sit your child down and say, look, what your teacher just taught you is 100% wrong. You know, what I'd have to do is put my child... <laughs> well, that's another, that's another option. See, in Tennessee, where since they're doing virtual a lot of classes, the teachers did not want the parents watching what they were teaching their children. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And, they, and the parents got you know, a floor about it, and they said, you know... I, yeah, but the parents... Yeah, but the grandparents and the parents have to... Fight that lie. When your children at school are taught lies, and don't doubt that they aren't. When your children go to school and they're taught lies, you have to tell them the truth. My brother homeschools his kids, and so they're, they're smart and they're well-grounded. But when they go to other places, and their teachers or leaders, whoever, might tell them something... My brother was very proactive in sitting him down and saying, that's not right. This is what God's Word said. So you don't listen to them. 
Doesn't matter if they're a teacher, doesn't matter if they're a pastor, doesn't matter if they're a, a political leader, doesn't matter what. You don't listen to them because if they say anything that's contrary to God's word, they're wrong. And I can't stress enough that that is black and white. Yes, Joy. Meeting I know that's a whole another issue, but um, we have to stand up for the truth, and we, as Christians, are in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and we have to be true to His word, and we have to follow His word as best we can, and we're going to mess up, we're going to sin, we're going to get blood on our hands, metaphorically, hopefully not really literally. Uh, But we're going to get blood on our hands. But we need to remember that God says, if you come back to me, I will make your sins white as snow. I will wash you white as snow. But if you don't, then you will be devoured by the sword. And so that's our lesson to us today from Isaiah. Thank you all for being here.